Take a seat. There's something about, that's probably one of my favorite characteristics of God is just that he is faithful. Amen to that? That is a rare quality indeed in this world. Well, get your Bibles out. We continue our series, Counterculture, Living a Righteous Life. We'll continue talking about Matthew 5, 31, 32, and this concept of divorce. Before we do that, let's pray. Our gracious, faithful, heavenly Father, your faithfulness stretches from beginning to end. You were faithful to us when you called us in eternity past, having predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters to yourself, providing a way through the the death and resurrection of your Son, completing the work you started within us through the Holy Spirit until we pass from this life onto the next to be with you forever, no longer looking as in a mirror dimly, but seeing you face to face, no longer knowing in part, but knowing in full. We come to you this morning asking you to give us a little more knowledge of you, that we may know you in, in less part, but in more fullness as we open our Bibles and as we look at this topic of divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, be glorified in all of this. Speak through me, empower me, use this teaching gift you've given me to strengthen the body here. And again, as always, Father, may it not be my words that come out of my mouth, but your words. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was in college, I had the privilege of ministering with a very godly man. Um, actually, we talked about him the other day, actually yesterday. His name was Michael Brown. He was a year older than I was. He was a sophomore at Ohio University. I was a freshman. He actually was my resident advisor for about half my freshman year. Uh, one of the men in his Bible study was my roommate, Clifford Eugene Baker. Uh, and they would regularly pray for me. Eventually, I became involved with Campus Crusade for Christ at Ohio University, the winter quarter of my freshman year, basically because of the prayers of my roommate and Michael Brown. Eventually, Michael and I would serve alongside each other together for years on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ at Bowling Green State University. There were many things I learned from Michael but one thing he said in particular stood out to me. He told me this story when he was, I think, around 12 or 13 years old. His father set him down on the couch in their living room and shared the gospel message with him. Mike became a follower of Jesus Christ that day on the couch in his living room with his father. And it was either one or two weeks later his father set Michael down on the couch in their living room and told Mike that he was divorcing his mother. 
Now, this story illustrates not only the inconsistent Christian witness of a father who acknowledges the need to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ as Savior for the forgiveness of sins, but also one who fails to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord over every area of your life. But to his father, he was not Lord over that one area of his life, which was his marriage. What a confusing message to send to your child. It's one thing to acknowledge Jesus with your lips. It's another thing to deny him by your lifestyle. Michael would later say that his father was committed to the institution of marriage. That was not a compliment. Now, to Mike's credit, he has not followed in his father's footsteps. He's still happily married to his wife, Teresa, and they have raised a godly family together. Now, this morning, as we'll continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount, last week we saw that Jesus addressed this issue of divorce, and in doing so, I mean, he does it in such a succinct manner with just two verses. He summarizes so much of the Bible, and he brings much-needed clarity to an issue that has caused unnecessary confusion to many people. In this case, to the Jews he was addressing his audience, and I would say today to many, many Christians. Now, you may recall that we discussed the permanent oneness of a man and a woman in the second chapter of Genesis. Remember Genesis 2, 23 through 24? The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I said, in order for us to understand God's view of divorce, we must first understand God's view of marriage. God brought together the first man and woman in a monogamous a lifelong marriage between a male and a female. Remember the words hold fast? Remember what that represented in the original Hebrew? It creates the idea of being glued to something. And thus reveals the nature of the marriage bond as God intended it to be. Two people stuck together. And I think some of us would say that, yeah, that is a lot like marriage. I'm stuck with my spouse, right? But those two people stuck together become one flesh in a permanent oneness. And Jesus reaffirmed this in Matthew 19.6. They're no longer two, but what? One flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And one of the things that stood out to everybody, or most people, in our Zoom Bible study last Wednesday night was the concept, the idea that before the fall of man, marriage was bliss. And I have no idea what that means. I have not experienced that. My wife has not experienced that. Nobody knows the marital bliss that Adam and Eve experienced. Okay? But after man had sinned, everything changed, including the marriage relationship. It too fell under the curse. And the curse given to the woman illustrates this point. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
Since Eve usurped Adam's headship when deceived by Satan in the Garden of Eden and led the way into sin, the woman would now struggle with the desire to usurp the role of a man and take authority in the relationship. And because Adam passively stood by while Eve was tempted, man would have to subdue or suppress the woman's desire to usurp his God-given authority. Folks, that is marriage, is it not? Let's be honest with each other. And the result is what I call a battle for control of the throne in the marriage relationship. And of course, what does this marital conflict lead to? Divorce. But if God's intention is that a man and a woman remain together in a lifelong monogamous marriage, why is there divorce? Jesus is asked this very question by the Pharisees. Matthew 19, 7 and 8. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The answer is that Moses understood that divorce is a reality because of the hardness of man's heart, which stems from what? The curse. Man and woman's heart, to be fair. But it was not this way from the beginning regarding marriage. They were never to be divorced, never to be unseparated. Divorce is just a symptom of man's and woman's sinful, hardened heart. Now when you understand this, you begin to see why God has such strong feelings about divorce, which is why he uses this word right here, hate. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Now let me remind, remind you, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So at the very beginning, he creates in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, marriage as a one permanent relationship, a permanent oneness between a man and a woman. He is reiterating this, in a sense, in the very last book of the Old Testament. I hate separation. I hate divorce in a marriage relationship. You're going to see how consistent God is throughout the entire Bible. My point I want to make about this, always keep this verse in the back of your mind, is that for a God, and our God, whose nature is love, to use the word hate, yeah. Regarding divorce, that means, at minimum, we should use extreme caution when considering divorce as an option. God's view is consistent with what we have seen so far in our study on divorce. Now, the passage we are studying in, is in Matthew 5, is this verse right here. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And as we continue our study in divorce through the Old Testament, we come to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It's here that we're going to talk about the confusion that came. So I call it then confusion. And you'll understand why in a moment here. 
But since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, sin has taken its toll on the marriage relationship between husband and wife. Divorce and broken relationships are becoming more and more commonplace. In Deuteronomy, Moses realizes this fact, that divorce is a reality, and he addresses this issue with an illustration. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 24. We're going to go there. Take your time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now Deuteronomy, of course, is the last of the five books written by Moses. Remember that, the Pentateuch? And it's a summary of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. A summary of the entire law. Okay? And I have up here the NAS. That's the new American standard. I'm going to read from that. I will then read from the King James Version. And you understand why in a moment. But this is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord, your God, is given you for, your, or for an inheritance. I want to read to you. You can just listen unless you have the King James Version Bible. The King James Version Bible of the same passage. Just get past all the ifs and these and the thous. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. The problem in interpreting these four verses is with the word then. If you go to your first verse in your version, in the New American Standard, NIV, whatever it is, it doesn't include what I'm going to read to you again, the first verse of Deuteronomy 24.1 in the King James Version. It says this, when a man hath taken a a wife and married her and it come to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her then if you have an updated version English standard version NAS NAV the word then is not there and this word this one single word folks has led to a misinterpretation by Jews and Christians and brought about much confusion this is the then confusion, okay? We must remember from the very beginning what 
does God think of divorce? Does he love it or hate it? He hates divorce. So we're not going to find a section in the Bible where God says, now if you find something wrong with your wife or your husband, write her a bill of divorce. We're not going to find that. Okay? That would not align with what the rest of the scriptures say about divorce that we have studied so far. For example, Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. Why would God then allow for divorce if he hates divorce, right? Or about Genesis 2, 23 and 24, the oneness of man in marriage. Matthew 19, what Jesus said, you know, let not what God has brought together man separate. Now since God hates divorce, what then is Moses doing with this bill of divorcement? And why did our Lord mention that Moses gave a bill of divorcement in Matthew 19? And I want to be clear on this. A certificate of divorce or the bill of divorcement was not God's prescription for marital conflict. Just because things are hard in marriage doesn't mean that you can get out of your marriage just by simply divorcing. God did not command divorce. He wouldn't do that. Well, why? He hates divorce. Jesus only recognizes that a bill of divorcement existed. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus why Moses commanded to give a writing of divorcement, his reply was that Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce. But was it that way from the beginning? What did Jesus say? It was not that way from the beginning. It was not so. So in other words, it's not a command. It was simply a permission based on our hardness of heart, our, our sinfulness. Why? Because God hates divorce. However, God knew in a cursed world where sin existed, relationships were strained, and because of the curse itself, divorce would be a reality. So God simply permitted that when divorce happened, here's the key, there had to be certain things that followed to ensure what would come about as a result. In other words, think of it this way, God is simply trying to regulate the consequence of divorce. Think about it. Marriage, there's a reason why you get married before a pastor or a justice of the peace, because marriage is what? A legal, legally binding contract. Therefore, there had to be a legal process to divorce. So when, when men were dispatching their wives at this time when Jesus arrived, for any reason, or men were simply becoming adulterous, or women were becoming adulterous, or women were leaving their, their husbands, what happened to the innocent spouse? Without a legal process, the innocent party could make no claim for anything. And no one would know the circumstances. And so to regulate future behavior, there was a certificate of divorce. Now what was the purpose of this bill of divorcement? Well, primarily it was for the woman, and it was, the, I think, the heart of God in one sense, because let me give you three reasons for it. Number one, it was a testimonial to the woman of her freedom from the marital obligation to the husband who divorced her. Because in the bill of divorcement was a statement 
that the woman was set free by the man so she wouldn't be accused of being a harlot. Number two, the right of divorcement was evidence for a new husband of her legal freedom to remarry. And number three, it was a protection for a woman's reputation from slander. It was proof that she hadn't forsaken her husband, and that she was not to be slandered as some harlot. What you have to keep in mind is this, folks. The woman, in the eyes of the law at that point in time in, in history, and even really until recent history, was kind of a thing. And that was it. She was at the absolute disposal of her father and then of her husband. She had virtually no legal rights at all. And for all intents and purposes, a woman could not divorce her husband for any reason. And a man could divorce his wife for any cause at all. This process of divorce was extremely simple. The man would be upset with the wife, or the husband would be upset with the wife, and would write something like this on a bill of divorcement that would say something like this, let this be for me a certificate of divorce and letter of dismissal and deed of freedom that you may marry whatever man you wish. And all that had to be done was for the husband to hand that document to his wife, soon to be ex-wife, in the presence of two witnesses. And then she stood divorced. However, as far as God was concerned, such a right of divorcement was only legitimate in one case, in one case only, and what is that case? Adultery. Now watch this. In Matthew 5, 32, remember this? We read these verses. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of what? Sexual morality, which would include adultery, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we get back here, Matthew 5, 32, the, that verse really explains what we're seeing in Deuteronomy 24. Because what Jesus is trying to do is to stop adding the additional sin of adultery to the original sin of what? Divorce, i.e. wrongful divorce. Again, adultery was the only ground, just grounds for writing a bill of divorcement. But here's the thing. The Jews were writing bills of divorcement for just about anything. In Jesus' day, there was much confusion about the grounds for divorce. The rabbis could not agree what constituted, in Deuteronomy 24.1, the word uncleanness or indecency. And there were two opinions and those following one rabbi felt adultery was the only grounds for divorce. Those following the other rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, accepted a number of reasons for divorce, including such things as, now catch this, poor cooking. Now technically, if you got an unfaithful spouse, you can move on from that marriage. But in doing so, you bring about what? You have unfaithful spouses, that they're not faithful to you, they are sexually immoral, they're committing adultery. You can bring about a divorce, but what are you bringing about? The very thing God loves or hates. I'm not hearing it, hates. In God's view, divorce is never the best solution. 
The best solution, as we'll find out, is to love and forgive and restore the relationship because that is what God has done to us. Let's take a closer look at the illustration Moses gives in Deuteronomy 24. This is the Old Testament standard, and his illustration highlights not a command to divorce, but he's really highlighting the evil of divorce. He's not trying to provide for divorce. Instead, he's trying to prevent divorce. The illustration he uses is a man who takes a woman and he marries her. It comes to pass he doesn't like her anymore, for whatever reason. It says here, though, because he's found uncleanness in her. Now, the word uncleanness, as you find out, doesn't mean adultery. It means some sort of shameful, naked exposure or indecent exposure. Now, do you remember what I said about the King James Version of Deuteronomy 24.1? When a man hath taken a wife and married her, it had come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. The word then is not in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, which this was written, of this verse. You don't find a word then in the Hebrew until verse 4, not verse 1. So Moses is not commanding divorce. Read it like this. If a man takes a wife and if he marries her, and if it comes to pass she finds no favor in his eyes, and if he has found some uncleanness, and if he writes her a bill of divorcement or divorce, and if he gives it to her hand, and if he sends her out of his house, and if she departs out of his house, and if she goes and marries another person. Folks, you never get a conclusion until the end. And the conclusion is the divorced woman can't come back and marry her first husband because she's so defiled. Well, how did she get defiled? She was divorced in the first place for something other than what? Adultery. She was a poor cook. And then, being free to remarry, she consummated a new sexual union with another man when she had no grounds to get out of the first marriage. And Moses says, you can't marry someone who is defiled by adultery. So you see, he's not advocating for divorce. Instead, he's saying there's only one basic grounds for divorce, and that is adultery. And if a man or a woman divorces for anything less than that, what will that person create? An adulterous situation that will defile the woman in that, this instance. <laughs> you with me so far? Now, he can never take her back because she is a defiled person. And that is precisely what Moses is teaching. It's not a command to divorce, as the Jews and many Christians still interpret this passage today. By the way, that is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5.32. You see that? That's the exact same thing that he said. Here it is. You see that? It's the same message. I want you to see how perfect, how in perfect agreement the Bible is. Beloved, God hates divorce. He never advocates divorce. 
Now, God allows it in the case of adultery, and in any other case, if you divorce for any other reason other than adultery, up to this point in our study, it leads to adultery beyond the sinful divorce. So you have adultery on top of the original sin of the wrongful divorce. So then Jesus and Moses are really endeavoring to prevent the further sin of adultery being added when the inevitable remarriage occurs. So what you have is these, these men didn't think your, the woman was, his wife was beautiful anymore, didn't think that she was submissive enough, didn't like her cooking. She took off her veil too early. I mean, there was all these different reasons that we can go over. They divorce. Write that piece of paper, two witnesses, send her off. She remarries, what's happened? Adultery. And so what you had going on because of this misinterpretation was a proliferation of adultery. It was just going on all the time. And according to Deuteronomy 24.4, what's it doing to the land? It's the following the land. Exactly. Preventing the blessing of God in that regard. So let me summarize what we've learned so far just in this, these two sermons. God made man and woman to marry and be permanently one in a lifelong monogamous relationship. God hates divorce. It is never his will. But he recognizes that it will be a part of human society because of sin. In certain cases, God will allow divorce as a technicality in the case of adultery only. However, divorce is not necessary because a greater way to approach it would be to what? Love, forgive, and restore the marriage relationship just as it was from the beginning. Now, it's not fun to hear for some of us. But let's take a look at another Old Testament example from Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 22. And it's going to illustrate the very point that divorce is not necessary because a greater way to approach it is to love and forgive and restore. Now, one of the ways in which God assures his people of his love for them is to describe himself as their husband. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14. So get, get your Bibles. Jeremiah's kind of towards the middle. If you go to the middle of your Bible, make a right. Eventually you'll come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. There are other places in the Bible, it, it discusses God as being a, a husband, but here we have it in Jeremiah 3.14. He says this, Return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. That's Jeremiah 3.14. Now let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, and get the context. It says, During the reign of King Josiah... The Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. Now, folks, do you think that all the Israelites, men and women, were going out under every tree and having, committing the actual physical act of adultery? No, it's talking about spiritual adultery. 
Israel has proven to be an unfaithful spouse. God's a husband, Israel's a wife. Is she faithful to him? No. She's committing spiritual adultery by worshiping false gods and forsaking the Lord. The Lord then thought that Israel would find worshiping wood and stones unsatisfying and return to him. And to make matters worse, Israel's sister, Judah, okay, nation of Israel, remember your history, there was a civil war, it divided, north was Israel, to the south was Judah. Judah is watching this spiritual adultery. She has a front row seat. All was going on, and what was God to do? Well, look at verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Now, could he do that under the law? Absolutely, right? Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and what? Committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered too little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. So basically, Judah came back and was practicing religious hypocrisy. And we know what God thinks about hypocrisy, right? In this passage, God warns Judah against making the same mistake that Israel, the neighbors in the north, had made. And in their idolatry, Israel had polluted the land, broken their covenant with God. Now, due to the enormity of their sin, God punished Israel. And he illustrates that punishment like this. He divorced Israel and sent them away. That means a reference to the Assyrian invasion that took place, which resulted in Israel's removal from their homeland. But even given the example of Israel's divorce and judgment, Judah remained unfaithful. Almost as if daring God to punish her in a similar manner. Now, having just cause, God, the faithful husband, does what? Divorced Israel, his unfaithful wife. And to make matters worse, look at what God had asked in Jeremiah 3.1. Everyone there? If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? Now, what did Deuteronomy 24.1 say? Can a man divorce his wife, send her away, she remarries, gets divorced again, her husband dies, can that original husband go back to that woman. No, why? Because she's been defiled. Correct? A man who had divorced his wife could not later remarry her. And according to God's metaphor now, Israel seems to be in a hopeless situation, right? She's been divorced by God, and he can't, according to the law, take her back. Where's the hope? But folks, this is what I want you to see now. Here comes the surprising twist. Look at verse 12. God's mercy intervenes. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. In the same 
passage in which God sets up a scenario of hopelessness for Israel. He invites his people to return to him. And he promises his anger will end. Now, could it be that God's faithful love for his people is that strong? Does mercy indeed triumph over judgment? Now, the Lord doubles down on his invitation, by the way. Look at verse 14. What's that say? Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you and bring you to Zion. You see, God's promise to do, he promises to do what the law of Moses could never do, to restore the broken marriage. I mean, it was unthinkable that a human husband would take back his unfaithful wife, right? Or that a wife would take back their unfaithful husband. You see, but God is greater than that. He can and will forgive his wayward people when they repent of their sin and seek him again. That's exactly what God requires. Look at verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt. You've rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. You see, God never divorced Israel unilaterally, once and for all. He only asked that they return to him and catch this. Not only will I bring you back, I want to do good things for you. Look at verse 15 through 18. You do that, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart. That means good leaders, godly leaders. Everyone knows that through the leader, as the leader goes, so goes the company, or so goes the nation. I want to give you good shepherds, people who will seek me, and they will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have what? Increased greatly in the land. So the blessing will come through the godly leaders that I will give you. And as if to drive home the point of his love and mercy and faithfulness, God calls his people Israel, his unfaithful people Israel, his people who have committed spiritual adultery to him a third and final time in Jeremiah 3.22. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. God hates divorce. Divorce is not necessary because a greater way to approach it is what? Love, forgiveness, and restoration. Now I want to close this morning by reading an article, part of an article, it's from Psychology Today, it's written by Rachel Clark. I don't believe that she is a Christian, she doesn't identify herself as one, but she wrote a powerful story about divorce and remarriage. The title of the short story is very telling. It says, it's called Boomerang, the short story of a divorce, reconciliation, and remarriage. One woman's hard questions bring her back to her ex-husband. It was written January 26, 2011. It starts out with a quote by J.R.R. Tolkien. The real soulmate is the one you're actually married to. Here's the article. It says, one night, a few months post-divorce, I'm kneeling well after midnight at my window. My new partner, we'll call him Joe, 
someone I now fully believe is my soulmate, lies asleep behind me in the cheap, too hot apartment we now share, and in which we have begun to welcome my two young sons on their periodic visits as per the joint custody schedule. Staring out the window, the dark breeze on my arms, I cannot place my unrest and unease. After the years of doubt, turmoil, and the agonizing months leading up to it, I had wanted this divorce. And imagine that once it was enacted, things would get easier, lighter, more fun, that I'd be happy. As I stare into the dark night, I recall how I'd entertained doubts about my compatibility in chemistry with my ex-husband, we'll call him Sam. On our first few dates, more than 15 years earlier, I'd known instinctively that with him, there would be a real family and a bedrock of trust, the likes of which I had never known. I'd fallen in love with the sure-footed, devoted, adult way he loved me. But by the time of our divorce, 15 years later, our story didn't sound so sweet. It had changed drastically to do something more like this, or to something more like this. We only stayed together back then because we were both young and naive. We didn't really know what we wanted. It felt safe, but not in a healthy way. Qualms that had surfaced over the long course of our partnership had catastrophically overturned our experience of our own reality. But I don't realize this yet. Instead, tonight, the dark outside mirrors a black sense of dread in my heart. Because tonight, I'm finally starting to ask questions. Right now, kneeling here, I have to believe that the doubts were true. My whole life and the lives of my children have changed because I believe those doubts, that we had serious problems in our marriage, that we no longer loved each other like that, that it was time to move on because we weren't compatible, we couldn't find joy together, and yet for 15 years we strode forward together. We made substantial careers for ourselves, visited our families, had dates, made good food and friends, moved across the country twice, bought houses, took trips, had beautiful children. I didn't talk when the TV was on. I added that. <laughs> right now, kneeling here, I have not yet confronted the ways in which our doubts had undermined our own reality. They'd fed a growing wound between us, oblivious to what was really happening we tried to alleviate our painful disconnection from each other with blame, resentment, contempt, and defensiveness. We'd activated the tragedy of making each other wrong. Our marriage had become like a beautiful mountain that also happens to be an unidentified active volcano. Red hot lava simmered beneath the surface and the pressure was building. So when I met another also married man, in the pressure, or in the midst of surviving the sleep-gutting colic of our second son, the suicide of a friend, and a recent move 3,000 miles from extended family, it was too easy for the volcano to spill over. Joe diverted our attention away from the real issue, the few puzzle pieces in our marriage that had not been put into place. If it hadn't been him, it would have been something else sooner or later. The town clock 
tower chimes twice, and I begin to hesitantly grasp why I am brooding, kneeling here beneath the dark night beyond our window. Things with Joe and with my post-divorce life in general are much harder than I expected. This is true in how Joe and I relate to each other. Uh-oh, maybe we aren't compatible either. And in the very complicated and painful experience of living apart from our children. It is also true in the emotionally volatile ways I now find myself relating to my ex-husband and in the behaviors and stress I see in my children. I've also noticed uncomfortably that sometimes I deeply miss my ex-husband, Sam. I'm definitely not happy, and so in these dim, shadowy moments, I am now finally forcing myself to ask if the beliefs that brought down my marriage are really true. And if they are not, then what on earth have we done? One day, a few months after Sam and I have remarried, I'm kneeling outside next to my sons and husband. The sun is shining. The leaves ripple a glowing new spring green. We are in the dirt, saying goodbye to our 16-year-old family cat. We each say a few words to the loving family member who'd kept us company all, all these years. The boys affixed Lego guards and toy soldiers to protect her and mark her grave with stones and a hopeful oak sapling. Incredibly, people next door are outside singing hymns. This has never happened before or since. The melodies quietly give way to the sunny, quiet breeze grazing our skin. The boys are done. They race each other to the tire swing, oblivious to what they will never know. I watch them, overwhelmed in this moment by what they almost lost. Sam and I rise. He wraps his arms around me, head bent against my ear, and says gruffly, thank you for sharing your life with me. I feel his tear graze my skin. I want you to review this sermon, answer the questions, and hopefully join us Wednesday night. Let's pray. Lord, create in us your character. Someone who loves, someone who forgives, and someone who restores what is broken. In all relationships. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's close with a song.